Well, welcome, welcome to Grace College, and we're going to be studying the book of John. Uh, and I'm excited about the book of John. It's, and hopefully by the end of the night, you'll see why I believe that for us, for the most part, uh, is probably the most impactful book in the Bible uh, as far as revealing who Jesus is. Uh, for us, and um, and so I'm excited. Tonight is going to be. Uh, I'm going to be giving you a lot of information. Um, I'm going to. I I do the handouts for two reasons. One, so you have something that you can take notes on. I'll tell you when to fill something in, um, but you can use the rest of the page for your own notes as well. Um, and then the second reason I do it is it helps me kind of stay without going everywhere. And uh, so that we can make sure to do it. So tonight is a lot, because it's the introduction, there'll be a lot of information and setting the groundwork for starting next week when we actually get into the particular scriptures. And then we're going to go basically chapter by chapter. Um, spend, I've got each chapter broken down into sections and we'll be able to discuss, discuss the different passages. And uh, if you have a question or if I get ahead of you in the notes, just raise your hand, stop me, ask the question, and uh, or or and or comment, uh, because that usually lets me clarify something that I haven't made clear enough, and or ask answer questions that we can. If I don't have an answer, I'll tell you I'll get an answer. But uh, I I enjoy this was my favorite seminary class, and I went to school for biblical studies, so all of my classes were actually studying each book. Um, instead of they have like in seminary you've got ministry and uh, ministry of uh, divinity and things of that nature. I did the biblical studies so that I could go each book by book and this was always my favorite and so we're going to just get right into it uh, point number one in your notes the gospel of John Me and there kick back in, didn't it? Yeah. Uh oh, hope there's not a shortness. Um, we'll just keep going. I'm trying to record it as well, and it's got to hear it back there. So, point number one uh, the Gospel of John is known as the Gospel of the Eagle's Eye. The Gospel of the Eagle's Eye, and uh, the Unfortunately, through tradition, we've been given the fact that there are four Gospels in, in the New Testament. And, and really there is. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But there is what is known as the Synoptic Gospels and the Fourth Gospel. The Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then the, uh, the other Gospel, or the Fourth Gospel, is John. And there's a reason for that, and that's part of our introduction here. Uh, in your notes there, I want to compare... Uh, the four Gospels based off of the four beasts of Revelation 4, 7 and uh, because this kind of applies to how each book is written so the Gospel of Matthew in that picture of the beast of Revelation would be the lion because Matthew saw Jesus as the Messiah and the lion of the tribe of Judah and he wrote specifically uh, I just had it open here. 
he, he, there was a reason each gospel writer wrote for a specific reason and uh, let me grab this note here that I have written in my Bible uh, Matthew wrote where did it go to present Jesus as the king okay so when you read the book of Matthew uh, you're reading and he's trying to present the the concept of who Jesus is is as the king and especially the king of the Jews uh, you'll find that Matthew Mark and Luke are written primarily to the Jewish culture and it was written probably in the mid-century probably in around the 50s and 60s of the first century where John is written much later than that and we'll address that in just a minute the second one here the Gospel of Mark is the picture of a man or humanity because Mark presents him uh, Jesus as the servant if you read the book of Mark he's coming from and see if you don't understand this then the idiosyncrasies of each gospel doesn't line up and you get confused but if you understand where they're writing from and the purpose of their writing Matthew wants to reveal Jesus as king Mark wants to review him at, or reveal him as man or as a servant. And Luke, the third one, is the calf or the ox. It's the animal of servant sacrifice. He saw Jesus as a servant and a sacrifice, but he presented him as a man. Luke, more than any of the other gospels, presents the Lord in his humanity. So the gospel of Matthew is the lion. The gospel of Mark is man. The Gospel of Luke is a calf or an ox. And uh, that's just kind of the picture of the three Gospels. And then Matthew is presenting him as a king. Mark is presenting him as a servant. And Luke is presenting him as the son of man. He focuses in on Christ's humanity more than he does in his deity. And then that brings us to the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John. And that is a picture of the eagle. It's a picture of the eagle. And uh, in, in your notes, I believe, I guess I wrote it, of all living creatures, it's the only one that can look directly into the sun and not be shaken, not be dazzled, not be awed. And John has the most penetrating gaze uh, of all the New Testament writers into eternity past and eternity future. And he brings it all together in his gospel. I like to put it this way. One of the reasons, if, if, if I'm dealing with somebody new that's just starting to read the Bible, a lot of times I will send them to the book of John first. And the reason is, is because the book of John, more than any of the others, at least to me, covers the grand scope. It's, like it's like a synopsis of the entire Bible. It goes way, way back to the before the beginning, and it ends at the end, okay? And, uh, and then if, if you, especially if you read John and then... It's the same writer that writes Revelation who deals with the end time as well. And so you can see that these uh, uh, all kind of fall. And it's important for you to remember as we go through this that John is the eagle. He's the one that's soaring. He's the one that's getting the big picture of things. He'll get very detailed in some areas of the passages that we get to. But in, in those details, it's a big picture uh, spectrum, if you will. Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus in on more of the details. Uh, and, and so where there seems to be some contradiction between the Gospels, uh, there's really no contradiction. There's just different 
perspectives that they're coming from and they're focusing on different details of the same story in a lot of cases. So in your notes here, number two, uh, John is considered the different gospel or the fourth gospel, the different gospel. Um, once you start reading about it, for instance, in the book of John, there is no record of the birth of Christ. There is no record of his baptism. Oh, I guess these are blanks for you. <laughs> so I won't, go, I won't go so fast. Letter A there, or number one for you guys, is there's no reference to his birth or his baptism or his temptation, which are the three big things that the others cover. The birth, the baptism, his temptation. There's nothing about that there. Number two, and I'll come back to these two, but number two is there's no Last Supper in the book of John. There's no Last Supper. So there's no, in your line one is the birth, the baptism, and the temptation. Line two is the Last Supper. Line three there is Gethsemane. You think about this. This is a book that doesn't deal with some of the biggest issues. And I'm going to explain why in just a minute. Hopefully. And then uh, there is no mention in the scripture of any deliverance of the demon possessed. Like there is in the other gospels, the synoptic gospels. And then also, there is no parables in the book of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke are full of parables. There are no parables in John. So John doesn't use the birth, the baptism, the temptation, the last supper. He, he doesn't even mention the ascension on, on top of that. Gethsemane, deliverance of the demon possessed or parables. Now, let me ask you this. Does anybody know why he doesn't reference any of those? Anybody have any wild guess? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's partly true. Anybody else have a guess? The other thing, the other thing, and the, the underlying, those two are, are well stated as well. The underlying reason why he doesn't mention those is because all of those have to do with the Jewish culture. To a Greek thinker, the birth of Christ meant nothing. To a Greek thinker, the baptism of Christ didn't mean anything. Okay? The temptation of Christ didn't mean anything. Gethsemane didn't mean anything to a Greek thinker. And because the synoptic gospels are, are written more towards mid-century, first century, John writes his around the year 100. And uh, he's looking back, and, and we're going to get into it a little bit here, just a little bit in a couple of minutes. But John is looking back, and he's already dealing with a church that is almost all... Greek thinkers. So, 
he wasn't addressing a Jewish culture. All of these were Jewish in, in culture. Uh, so when you talk to the Jew about the birth, Bethlehem, Bethsaida in the Old Testament, when you talk about that triggers something in a Jew. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are primarily writing to the Jewish culture because it's only a couple of decades at the most since the time of Christ, and they're still trying to reach the Jewish culture, where John has stepped back again like an eagle, and he's getting the grand scope of humanity, and it's probably the reason why a lot of us, unless we're raised in a church, the book of John means the most or can speak to us the, the most because we're not familiar with the Jewish culture. Now, somebody that's raised as a Jewish boy or girl, they're going to know all of the feasts. Okay, I still don't remember all of the feasts, and I've studied them. <laughs> I don't even know the Jewish calendar unless I actually look it up as to what month is which. Okay, but a Jew would know that. Okay, so when Matthew, Mark, and Luke are writing, they're writing to a Jewish culture to reveal Christ to a Jewish culture. John is writing to both a Jewish culture and a Greek culture, much more the Greek culture or the Gentile culture, if you will, than he is. And so he takes a different approach to present Christ. Okay, and so when you read the book of John, it's one of the reasons why maybe we like it the most is because it's presenting God, if you will, Christ in a Gentile fashion. And he's speaking to the Gentile more than the Jew. Okay, so that's that, that's the reason why I believe that John doesn't have these things mentioned in his book. And that we're not going to study the birth of Christ. We won't be studying the baptism of Christ and different things of that nature. Uh, we're going to be dealing with a bigger, broader scope and a different perspective in how to see that. So... There are even different facts um, in the life and ministry of Jesus. And I'm just going to give you these and, and you can just be aware of it. Uh, number one there, there, John has a different account of the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Okay, John, um, the other gospels, the, the synoptic gospels really don't pick Jesus up until after John the Baptist's ministry has already started even to come to a conclusion. And, you know, you can see right in the beginning chapters after the story of the birth of Christ, it goes right into John the Baptist oftentimes. And so they're catching John the Baptist's ministry at the tail end and, and then that ushers in where John tends to go before John the Baptist's ministry and starts earlier than that and then brings it out. And so there can be some differences of the beginning of the ministry. Number two there, John has a different account of the scene of the ministry of Jesus. Almost all of John's uh, records um, deals with Jesus in Jerusalem and Judea, where the other three gospel writers focus mostly on Galilee. Here's the reason why all this is important. And it's, it's foundational stuff to understand the book of John is because it, it would be like it would be like us writing today and we have a choice to write in Spanish or in English and depending on which culture we're addressing it to. Okay, because each culture has a different philosophy and a different understanding. And, and so these three are writing it in the scene of uh, because Galilee means the most to the Jew 
because that's where all of their trade was. That's where they owned all the business, the Sea of Galilee. And then they went into Jerusalem a little bit. And then they went back. But where John is coming from, John comes to the hub of the Gentile culture within the Jewish parameters uh, of that day, which was where the Greek and the Romans set up, which was Jerusalem. And so he spends most of his time accounting in those different areas. Uh, John uses a different account of the duration of the ministry. Now, this is important. Um, how many people know how old Jesus was when he went to the cross? 33 and a half or so. But here's how we get that. That's really just surmised, if you will. There's some historical accounts I would say, but because a Jewish boy would go would not really become an adult till 30, that doesn't register with us. We're 18. 30 years old, they would be an apprentice until they were 30, and then at 30, they would become a man. Okay? And they would step into their ministry. They would step into, they would be no longer be an apprentice. They would be their own business owner and whatever apprenticeship that they went into. Back then it varied, but it wasn't so much. No, right. But when I'm saying an adult, yeah, usually it's a teenage, but when I'm saying a man or an adult, it's, it goes from apprenticeship to, in other words, Jesus couldn't own Jacob's or Joseph's wood shop, carpentry shop, until he was 30. Okay, that, that I guess is the more of the transition. So we assume that because his ministry started, wouldn't have started until he was 30. If he, 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 that just by culture, he wouldn't have started until 30. And then because of the book of John, we can see three Passovers in the book of John. That lets us know that there was three years and so we can do the math and we come up with the idea that Jesus was 33 and a half years old. And historical accounts balance that as well. Eusebius and Josephus, I think, mentioned something to that effect uh, of that time frame. But if you read the Synoptic Gospels, just reading them, you would think that there was one year of ministry. Because they encapsulate one year. But each one of them are dealing with a different year. And you don't recognize that unless you're you're really breaking it down. Um, for instance, um, I lost my place in my notes. Because I didn't turn my page. Um, John in, John spent, mentions the cleansing of the temple in John chapter 2, which was at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's all at the end of his ministry, which lets us know that one of two things happened. Either they're recording different events, and so there was two times he cleansed the temple, which is where I lean at, or something is askew and they've messed up. <laughs> okay? But you have to understand that the duration of the ministry is, is alternating where John is going to the beginning and the others are dealing with like a one-year picture of this is all the miracles they did. And it's also part of the reason why John is able to take a lot of his stuff from Jerusalem and Judea instead of from Galilee because he's focusing on a three-year period where they have narrowed down their focus in their writings. And so, again, this is... This is information to give you the proper perspective of understanding why there's some idiosyncrasies between the Gospels 
And, it's, and the reason why the word synoptic is they mesh together. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record all the same stories, but from a different perspective. They, they're covering a lot of the same things. In fact, most of them repeat the story over and over again, where John doesn't mention half of the stuff that they deal with. And, and so are they in disagreement? No, John is just dealing with it from a different perspective. John seems to have special knowledge. Remember, John was the one, and this is number three in your notes. Uh, or no, I'm sorry, letter C. Letter C in the, on the bottom of your first page. John, John's special knowledge. The facts, sorry. That was the, the I used the cleansing of the temple. The facts. See, that's why I need to keep you keep me straight. Part of the reason is I'm using three different style of notes up here. <clears throat> so letter C in your notes, number three in mine, is John's special knowledge. John's special knowledge. You have to remember that John was classified as the disciple that Jesus loved. And we understand that John was there for the most part from the beginning. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were not. In fact, Mark and Luke weren't anywhere near it. Matthew came along a little bit later. Remember, John Mark is actually Mark, and Luke is a physician that wrote, and he was, uh, so they weren't even disciples from the beginning. So out of the Gospels, Matthew and John, but John was with Jesus from the beginning. Matthew came on along a little bit later. He wasn't one of the first disciples chosen. And so John has some uh, quote-unquote special knowledge, and a couple of these we've listed here in your notes that he either stated or they seem to be unaware of. In chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, is the wedding feast at Cana. That's number one under letter C. The wedding feast at Cana. That's not recorded in any of the other Gospels. In chapter 3 there, you can just put Nicodemus down. Again, we're going to be studying these passages in the next couple of weeks. But So number 2 there under letter C is Nicodemus. He's the only one that records Nicodemus coming to um, to Jesus at, in the middle of the night. Uh, in chapter 4, uh, he talks about the woman of Samaria. That's not found in the other Gospels. You know, some of these are big stories that we think are just repeated, and, and they're really not. They're, they're, they're John's. So chapter, or verse, that's number 3 in your notes on the second page there. Uh, the woman of Samaria. What's that? No, it's number three in your notes. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking I'm looking right at it, honey. <laughs> Yeah, number three there, and then it's got four in parentheses. That's chapter four of John. That's the woman of Samaria. Number four, and that's chapter 11, is the raising of Lazarus. That's not found in any of the other scriptures or any other gospels. Number five there in chapter 13, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. See, these are things that John is focusing on, and he focuses on it because he expands 
outside of the Jewish culture and explains why these things are important. Uh, and then number six there, chapters 14 to 17, um, is the, the teaching of the Holy Ghost, the Comforter. That's not found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke either. So it was Cana of Galilee, the wedding feast, the coming of Nicodemus to Jesus, the woman of Samaria, the raising of Lazarus, the washing of the disciples' feet, and the teaching of the Holy Ghost, or the Comforter. That, that, that Those are what we would classify as huge things. And those of us that are Gentiles that come from when I talk Gentile and Greek, I'm, those, I'm using those terms interchangeably. I know it's not totally interchangeable, but for our purposes, it's going to be. And so uh, we hear preaching all the time on these. Well, why? Because it's reaching the Gentile culture the most. It resonates with us the most. You know, the woman of Samaria, the outcast, shouldn't have been around the Israelites. He went through a place where he didn't where no other Jews usually went. In the beginning of that chapter, he said he must needs go through. So it resonates with us a whole lot easier and and more relative, if you will, than you know dealing with the Feast of the Tabernacle and wondering what the Feast of the Booths is. <laughs> it just doesn't resonate as much. So number two in your notes, there's little details that show John's uh, insight into things and. These, uh, again, we're, we're showing just some things here that lets you see that John had a very intimate relationship with the Lord. And when he speaks or writes, when he's doing putting this together, it's something that we can attach ourselves to. In chapter 6, verse 9, he's the one that identifies the loaves as barley. He identifies the loaves. The other ones just say the loaves. In the feeding of the 5,000. He identifies that it was barley loaves. Just there's some details. And, and we'll be able to see that when we get to chapter 6. Because later in chapter 6 verse 19. He's the only one that references that they went 3 to 4 miles. Onto the sea. That's number 2 there. 3 or 4 miles into the storm. Well, there's, there's reasons. We'll get into that when we get to that chapter. But there's for all of this stuff, there's reasons that he does so because it speaks to, um, well, for instance, a short for instance, when Jesus gets accused or his disciples get accused for uh, picking corn on the Sabbath, okay, that doesn't register with a Greek individual because the Sabbath is meaningless to a Greek. Okay, so Jesus confronts the Jewish culture in that setting, but a Greek is going to look at it and say, okay, why is that so important? And then he's able to give details to it. Um, and we'll see more of that as well. It's interesting to note that there were six water pots in chapter two, verse six. In other words, these aren't just generalities. He, he's very specific about some things in telling the story to reveal Jesus to a culture that does not know him or have any concept of, of who he of who Jesus is. 
it's interesting to note in John 19 that we know that there were four soldiers gambling for his robe. It's, it's referred to another one, but it, but it goes down to the, okay, well, why is it the four? Because the Roman culture and the Greek culture was attached to the Roman culture because they fought each other all the time. And so it ended up being interspersed. There was reasons when, when there's four soldiers there, they knew which four soldiers would have been at the foot of the cross, gambling for the garments. The Jew could care less. It was just another Roman soldier. Okay. Uh, letter E, he knew the exact weight of the spices. John 19, he knew the exact weight of the spices for the burial of Christ. And then in chapter 12, this one just kind of is interesting to me, but because remember, he's writing around the year 100. And you can almost see him sitting, if he's got a desk, I don't know what he was writing on, but sitting at his desk writing, and it's almost like he's transported back to that. So in, in chapter 12, he remembers the aroma of the Bethany anointing. When the, when the spikenard was broken and it was poured out on his feet, he remembers the aroma of it. That's how detailed he was. And, then, and really what... Even underneath all of that, he lets us, it lets us know that he is fully aware of the little things that Jesus was a part of. And it, it wasn't, in other words, it was, Luke was telling us about Jesus from a third person perspective. John is able to tell him right from the detailed perspective of what was going on. Um, I'm just going to read off these answers in this next one. The uh, where it says John's detailed knowledge of Palestine and Jerusalem. This lets us know that, again, that uh, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, and he's writing in 100, and he's recalling the little particulars of the, the city of Jerusalem. Um, in chapter 2, verse 20, he knew how long it took to build the temple. That would be... Under number three, Roman numeral three, number one, 220. He knew how long it took to build the temple. We, we already mentioned a little bit, but number two, he understood the Jewish Samaritan quarrel. What was that last word? The Jewish Samaritan quarrel, fight, hatred for one another. You know, we've, we've told the story in churches forever. You know, the Jews, if they were going from the north to the south, they went around Samaria. Well, John addresses that and lets us understand that he's going to go where he needs to go to help us. Exactly. Well, and that, that's another reason why John, to me, is so powerful, is it does. Again, it resonates with us. It's, it, it fits to today because it doesn't sit in just one culture. Uh, number three, therefore, nine. He understood the low view of women at the day of the day. John understood the low view of women. How she shouldn't have even been talking to the Lord. In chapter five, he remembers the way that the Jews regarded Sabbath. 
and he uses it to explain it to a Greek culture of why the Sabbath was so important. Uh, number five in chapter one and chapter 12, um, he knows the distinction between the Bethanies. There's two cities of Bethany and he recognizes the two different aspects of it. Bethany, the city. He knew that there was two different distinctions within. So when you read elsewhere about Bethany, you have to understand which Bethany it's talking about. See, here's, here's why I can comfortably say that we as Christians have barely scratched the surface of the Word of God. That's right. <laughs> no matter how many years we've tried to study it, because when you start breaking down, even if you... One of the things that I always enjoy doing is is opening up the back of the Bible, looking at the maps, and just kind of seeing, okay, well, when it's saying this city or that city, or where's this, where's that, where did Jesus go from here to there, where did Paul go from here to there, and, and, and that's why I say we barely scratched the surface of, of what the Word really has for us. In chapter 1 and chapter 12 as well, letter, uh, number 6 for you guys, uh, Bethsaida, B-E-T-H-S-A-I-D-A. -E -E it's another city, but it, he, he identifies it as the home of some of the disciples. So now he is taking and he's connecting a Jewish culture and revealing it for a Greek culture by identifying the disciples of the Lord to cities that the Lord served in or ministered in. He identifies, number seven, uh, that Cana is in Galilee. It's one of the few times that he goes outside of Jerusalem and Judea, but he identifies that Cana is in Galilee. Again, these are just some detailed knowledge that he understands the area and, the, and the, within the area, the culture and the topography of which he was at. In chapter four, verse five, he understands that Sychar, S-Y-C-H-A-R, is near Shechem, S-H-E-C-H-E-M. Sychar is near Shechem. S-H-E-C-H-E-M. S-H-E-C-H-E-M. Again, I'm just gonna keep going with this. Um, chapter five, just put the sheep gate and the pool near it the pool. He understood where the sheep gate and the pool were. And in the those days, the different theories about getting into the pool, he understood that the sheep gate was right close to the pool. And there's a connection that he, that he makes that we'll deal with when we get to chapter 5. In chapter 9, he understands the pool of Siloam. These are all, if you read the Synoptic Gospels, they don't get into the details of the topography of where it's at as much. Pool of Siloam, S-I-L-O-A-M. And again, these are, tonight's the foundation, so we're gonna go back and we'll end up revisiting all of these when we get into the actual passages. Chapter 10, he identifies Solomon's porch. 
which is really interesting because now he's pulling way back from the Old Testament, bringing it to that day, and then identifying it to the Greek. Solomon's porch. In chapter 18, verse 1, he identifies the brook Kidron. K-I-D-R-O-N, Kidron. And again, you have to remember, he's doing this all from memory. Okay? Now, I can like to think that I remember a lot about the city of Oakdale where I grew up. But it's changed. And uh, I'm on a neat Facebook group with the old Tanner's Lake people where we grew up. And there's a gentleman on there that uh, is probably in his 70s now, but he remembers things in detail. It's mind-blowing. But John, remember, is writing 30 years after Jerusalem has been destroyed. And he's remembering all of these. In chapter 19, verse 13, he remembers the pavement was called Gabatha. The pavement was called Gabatha. And that is G-A-B-B-A-T-H-A. There's some notes right back there, Kim. The pavement called Gabatha. And then the last one there, he identifies Golgotha as a skull. The other ones don't do that. Which lets, which doesn't mean all that much except for the fact that a Greek person can look to a hill outside of Jerusalem that looks like a skull. 70 years after Christ died there and equate the two. Okay? So now we'll get into letter D on your notes. Letter D. The circumstances in which John wrote. And this is, we're going to spend a little bit of time in this tonight now because now we're getting into, again, the Greek culture, which we've talked about a little bit but uh, I want to spend a little bit of time on this. Um, John is writing in Ephesus, which is not a Jewish city, around 100 AD. And uh, by that time, there's two special features uh, here that under letter D, the first number one, Christianity had gone into the Gentile world. That first one is Gentile. It's kind of what we've been talking a little bit here tonight. It's gone into the Gentile. And, and so Christianity could no longer be explained from a Jewish background. Okay, in 100 AD, you, you, you couldn't explain. The circumstance was such. And, and see, let me bring it to modern day thinking. How many have ever heard, I know some of you have, of what an apostolic church is. Okay. Uh, Carrie said it right. She kind of went like this. Can I tell you, I went to apostolic Bible church. That's what I grew up in. And I would tell my friends, well, I go to apostolic. Well, what's apostolic? And they could never say apostolic. It was apostolic, but they couldn't say it. And then if I change it from an apostolic church to a Pentecostal church, then I really messed them up. Because they had no background in what an apostolic or a Pentecostal church was. 
until I explain to them, well, we get Pentecostal church from the, the, the Feast of Pentecost, which happened in Acts, and we believe that that's where the church was born, so we become a Pentecostal church. And then when I say we're an apostolic church, it means that we're built on the, the basic tenets of the, of the apostles of the New Testament, and that is what is an apostolic church. But to somebody that doesn't know what the book of Acts is, it is meaningless to tell you that you went to an apostolic church or a Pentecostal church. And so I learned at a young age that I needed to explain what I was to my friends in a different fashion. And so uh, that's what John is doing. He's realizing, you know, when, 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 the, uh, when they were preaching in 40 and 50 and 60 AD, they were preaching mostly to Jews. It was the big, if you read Acts chapter 10, this was the big brouhaha is that God was trying to get Simon Peter to cross over into the Gentile world and Simon Peter didn't have a clue on how to, how to present it. It took Paul, who was a, a Roman citizen, so he was, he was a Jew, but he was a Roman citizen, so he had understood the Greek and the Gentile culture. It took him to come in and explain it to them. Well, John now is in 100. See, Paul lived before 100. John's writing after all these. John was the last disciple. And he's writing and he's realizing that what Simon Peter didn't realize in Acts 10, he's realizing now Christianity can't be explained in Jewish paradigms only because then it's only reaching to the Jew. I've got to come up with a way to explain Christianity to the Greek culture or the Gentile thinking culture. Exactly. <laughs> he came to, to cross over the cultures. So number one there that I want you to see under Christianity gone into a Gentile world, um, they had become... Let me put it to you this way. One, I'm, going to, I'm going to throw another word. Not on your notes here. The Christian church at the time had become Hellenistic. Okay? A Hellenistic church was a Greek-infused thinking. Okay? They didn't disregard the Old Testament per se, but they came from a perspective and a thinking of a Greek culture. Okay? And so the, the concept of Christianity or the revealing of Christ had to be written or restated in such a way that they would understand. Uh, because the Greeks or the Gentiles, uh, and, and we keep using the word Greek, I should back up and say why we kept keep making the word Greek. Most of the Greek, or most of the language of that day that, that John is writing was Greek. Okay? It was, it was uh, uh, Koine Greek, it was common Greek, it was uh, and so the majority of the New Testament is written in Greek because that's who they were writing to. Even the Jews, and it was kind of like the English of the day, let's put it that way. English kind of goes across all cultures. Um, it, it's, that's kind of what we're talking about here. That's why we're using the word Greek. Well, they had two concepts. Number one, they had a conception of the Logos, L-O-G-O-S. Now, uh, we're going to get into this a lot in chapter 1 because verse 1 of chapter 1, John starts right off. He's speaking to the Greek. It's the reason why this is in there. It says, in the beginning was the word. Okay, that's the word logos. And the word was, or the logos was with God and the logos was God. Okay, and so he's speaking to a Greek culture because they had a concept of, 
the, the Gentile Christians or the Greek Christians had a concept of the word logos. Now see, when we read it in English, it's just the word word. Okay? But to a Greek reading it, and it says logos, the Greek understand that there's actually two components uh, to the word logos. One is word, the, 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 uh, a word that's given, uh, and the other one is reason or plan or blueprint, if you will, that is, is expressed by the word. So just for weak comparison, you could say in the beginning was the reason. And the reason was with God and the reason was God. Okay? The Greek would have read it that way. Okay? So when it's translated to the word, it's, and we'll get into all this in chapter 1, but you can see they had a concept of the Logos. Now, the Jew was entirely familiar with the word of God. Okay? Uh, Genesis 1-3. Then when, you know, God said, let there be light and there was light. They understood the power of the word, but the Greek was entirely familiar with the thought or the reason or the planning or the, the design, if you will. And so he looked at the world and he saw this magnificent and dependable order that night and day came with unfailing regularity. You know, the sun came up and the sun went down and the year kept its seasons and the stars and the planets moved in its path and nature had her. And, and so their question wasn't what spoke it into existence. Their question was what produced it. See the two difference? The Jew accepted the fact that the God of their forefathers was the one that spoke it into existence. The forefathers didn't mean anything to the Greeks. Their question, their curiosity was, who produced what I'm seeing? Who produced the design? Who, who, who made the blueprint of what was what, what's going on around me? And so John takes this, and the Greek began to understand that it was the Logos, or the mind of God, that was responsible for this majestic order of the world. And so John takes that and grabs a hold of that and declares to them, in the beginning was the Logos, the reason, the plan, the design, the purpose. And not only was it in the beginning, it was with God and it was God. Brilliant. So, so John is taking just in that first verse and this concept the, of the Christian church of that day, the understanding or the, the con concept of the Logos, and, and John is putting it right in there. And what he's basically saying is, all your lives you've been fascinated by this great guiding, controlling mind of a God that you did not know, and the mind of God has come to earth in the man Christ, Jesus. And so he is, it's the reason why it's seemingly colorful language to us but to a Greek reading John chapter 1, there is no mistake on what he's trying to tell the Greek. He's telling the Greek that this reason, this logos, this blueprint that you think put everything into order became a man in verse, 40, in verse 14. And the Greek culture grabbed a hold of that like that. Okay? And so they had a concept of... Uh, the Logos. The second number here, they had a concept of two worlds. And I liked how the Greeks do this. 
Letter A, there on this next page, you may have to flip it over, I can't remember if that's page, that's page three, so it's the other page. Um, they had a concept of two worlds. In fact, Plato, if you've ever studied Greek philosophy, Plato was a big proponent of this. And in this concept, there was letter A there, the world in which we live was one of the two worlds. The world in which we lived was the first one. And it was a wonderful world in its way, but it was a world of shadows and copies and unrealities. Sounds like what we're living in right now, right? Amen. Uncertainties. Around every corner was an uncertainty. It was a shadow. There was dark places. There was, there was places, and that was the world that we lived in. And so the Greeks understood that uh, in their concept of two worlds, almost parallel worlds, if you will, in the way that they thought, and, and that was simply one was the world in which we live, and then the second one was the real world. And I love how they say that. The one in which we live, which was shadows and copies and uncertainties, and then there was the real world. Is how they looked at it. And in the real world is where all the great realities and all of the of which our earthly things are only poor, pale copies. Everything that we have down here is just a minute example of what we're getting ready to have in the real world. Now see, when John is writing this and the Greeks understand this, he's getting to the place where he's, he's getting his, his book, his, the whole Gospel of John is getting ready to tell them how to get to from their insignificant world in which they live that's only shadows and copies and get to the real world in which the Logos has created both. Yeah, you could do earth and heaven. They wouldn't have looked at it that way. But that's the, the principle is there. Yes, we will today, absolutely. Yeah, and, and so, in fact, Plato systematically did this, and, and uh, this is not in your notes here now, but he held that the unseen world, there was a pattern, perfect pattern for everything. And the things of this world were just copies of the real world. Let me put it to you in ways that I've used in preaching to this church. Everything that happens here is a reflection of what's already happening there. Everything that happens in this world is something that's already happening in the real world. And I love that concept that that's the real world. We're not in the real world. We're getting ready to go to the real world. Okay. And so the, the great problem for the Greek was then how to get this world of reality and how to get our shadows into eternal truths, how to get into the real world. And so Jesus declares that's what Jesus was getting ready to do. Jesus was making a way for the Greek to go from the world in which they lived into the real world. And he declares to them the way that he did that was that he, that which is from the real world came to the world in which we live so that those in the world that we live can get back to the real world. Which is what we preach is the gospel. Okay. God came to earth as a man so that man could go back to God. 
Okay, and John is wrapping it up in just the first chapter almost. He, but he's, get, he's catching the attention of, of the Greek thinker. And we're going to see next week when we get into chapter one, he grabs her attention right off the bat so that the rest of the book is all reinforcing the first 18 verses of chapter one. The Greeks were. Yes. The Greeks believed in two worlds, the, rea the world we live in, reality, and the real world. Okay? John is taking that concept. Now, here's the way the Jews believed. Jews believed that there was earth and Abraham's bosom. Okay? And if you remember reading, and I think it's in Luke, where the, the rich ruler is across the chasm and trying to get Lazarus to, to drop one drip of, of water because they're in the Abraham's bosom, which was a place of comfort and a place of torment at the same time. Okay, that's the Jewish culture. The Greek culture was, there's two parallel worlds. Okay, and so John again is writing on a big scope of things so that the Jew understands it, but so does the Greek or the Gentile. And so he writes this book so that those of us today who don't understand the Jewish culture like we probably should, we recognize something isn't right in the world and there's got to be a better place. And notice Paul even picks up some of this because if you read Paul, uh, Romans chapter 1, Paul identifies, look at creation and nobody can refuse or excuse that there's not a God. Okay? Well, that was Roman and Greek. Remember, Roman and Greek, they kind of blend. But, but that, that's Greek theology. And so John, instead of trying to refashion the wheel, so to speak, he takes what the Greek believes and he begins to identify the parts. He does what Paul did on Mars Hill, where Paul went to them and said, you've got all these gods and you've got one God here that you said is the unknown God. I'm getting ready to reveal the unknown God to you. Okay, He didn't blast them for having a bunch of gods and an unknown God. He just said, I'm getting ready to reveal the unknown God. And when you know the unknown God, all these other gods are going to be meaningless. Okay, But he didn't throw out all of their stuff. Well, that's what John is doing by writing to the Gentiles and the Greeks to this. He's, he's not throwing out their belief. He's saying, you believe it this way, but now let me plug in the truth into what you're thinking. Because you're not wrong. There are two worlds, but it's not what you think it is, okay? And, and so uh, it lets us see a little bit about how John attracts the thinker. Greeks were known for being deep thinkers and they were reason, they were based on reason, rationale, and, and, and John comes in and he explains it all. But here's the problem. Here's why it makes it so difficult for some of us sometimes to grasp what John is saying, because we're thinking John is writing to a Jew. Okay, because in our historical renderings, what we we we, we miss a gap. We are known as a Judeo culture. We were. It's fastly disappearing. But the country was founded on a Judeo-Christian 
But what they fail to realize is the Gentile part of that. Okay? We really are a Judeo-Gentile Christian mindset. Okay? And so when you leave the Gentile part out, then you say, well, we're Judeo-Christian. So the Christian, how many have ever heard this, that the Christian is the new Israelite? Or the church is spiritual Israel? No. We're a whole new creature. We're Christians. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and the reason for that is Judaism was a precursor to Christianity, but so was Greek thought a precursor to Christianity. It just depended on what perspective you read into it. So when you begin to read the book of John and he's writing to a Gentile at 100 AD, he's writing to a Gentile Christian church. The Gentiles of the church of that day did not identify with the Jewish culture of that day. And so he had to represent it in ways that they would understand. So the next thing I want to, number two there, is the rise of heresies. The rise of heresies. A heresy is seldom a complete untruth, and that's where it gets confusing. Okay, a heresy is basically a false truth. Okay, it, it, it's a lie. But it's not a total untruth. Um, it usually results when one facet of a truth is unduly emphasized. Okay? Well, it becomes manipulative. Let me just, let me go through this and it'll help explain it. Number one there is the exalted state of John the Baptist. Okay? Um, Jewish Christians, John the Baptist was a hero. He was rude, crude. You know, he, he blasted the, the religious leaders. He blasted anybody that wasn't going to, to uh, you, you know, because remember what the Jews were looking for. The Jews were looking for the king to come in. Even the disciples at the end of Jesus' ministry in Acts chapter 1 says, well, are you now going to set up your kingdom? They totally missed what Jesus was doing because they were looking for a political kingdom, a political overthrow, a political rise again of the throne of the Old Testament Jews. And so they put an unduly exalted premise to John the Baptist. There was something that was appealing to the Jew because he didn't put up with anything. Okay. And, and, and so... Uh, in fact, we understand later because we read Acts chapter 19 that there had to be a sect, if you will, or a group of people that became John the Baptist's disciples. John 19 it was his disciples. They, okay, was John the Baptist a problem? Was he an evil? Was he not being truthful? No, he was being all of those, but what made it a heresy was they were putting him up on a pedestal. Let me just... I'll, I'll be as bold as to say, and even though we're videoing, the Catholic Church has done the same with Mary. Mary was a handmaiden of the Lord. She was not divine. 
She was a human lady that accepted the call of God in her life. Okay? Now, I have utmost respect for her, but can I just tell you she's not any different than any other lady that sits in our churches today? Okay? What becomes heresy is when we elevate one or the other. We tend to do that in churches with some preachers. We elevate them more. They're just... Listen, I'm just like you. I deal with the same things you deal with. I get upset at some of the same things you get upset with. You know, uh, it's it. But we have to understand that when it becomes heresy is when we elevate or we put too much emphasis on even aspects of truth. Can I just tell you that's what the serpent did with Eve? Just one little twist of what God said. It is a sin. In that regard, I believe so, yeah. Okay, so the, 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 the exaltation or the exalted state of John the Baptist. Number two, Gnosticism. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. The basic doctrine of a Gnostic was that matter is essentially evil and spirit is essentially good. And so on that basis, what became heretical to them, it, or because of this statement, is that God could not touch matter and therefore God did not and, or could not and did not create the world. Because matter is evil. So if God created it, God's good, he's a spirit. He can't create the world. Um, there was a man by the name of Serenthus that said it this way. The world was created not by God, but by a certain power far separate from him and far distant from that power who is over the universe and ignorant of the God who is over all. Okay. In other words, multiple, multiple gods. And that, that heresy came to, and their mindset to start it was good saying that God is so pure. But they didn't understand that the earth was so pure until Adam and Eve messed up. Okay? The Bible says it this way. Paul addresses this. For by one man, sin entered into the world. Sin didn't enter by God. Sin entered by man's disobedience. Therefore, the things of the world are not evil. It's what man touches that becomes evil when it's not handled the proper way, if you will. You know, so, so the idea um, of the Gnostic, what, which is number two, the Gnostics, number, letter A, some held that Jesus was just one of the emanations, E-M-A, nations. And, and what that simply is, an emanation is something that just is put off them. So if you can picture the great big pure God that didn't create world because he's so pure, then there's this God, then there's this God, then there's, there's multiple emanations. And Jesus was just one of them. It was a heresy that was going on at the time that he was dealing with. That the emanation proceeded from God, but it wasn't God. And so that led to the concept, let her be there, that they, they believe that Jesus had no real body. Um, no, because Muslims believe 
No, you're fine. Muslims believe in in a God. They believe that Jesus was a man, but they don't believe that Jesus came from God himself. Okay. And, and Jesus comes from God in a different way. When we get into the actual book, we'll, we'll see how he comes from God. But this mindset was that there's multiple auras of God. Okay. So the best way I can picture it, it's crude, but there's the bubble up here of God. Then it's, it's, it's the flip side of, of an air bubble coming up in an air tank when you're scuba diving. You've got all the little bubbles that go. It's the other way. And Jesus just happened to be one of the bubbles way down the bottom. But he wasn't pure because he was not ultimately God. Okay, there was a bunch of gods in between. Okay. And they, so they held that Jesus had no real body. Okay, that Jesus was a, not really a man, but he wasn't really a guy. He was just kind of a it. And, and, and then there was different variations of that. That's letter C. Uh, if you want to write this word next to it, it's D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M, docetism. That's this philosophy of, that's the philosophy of the, her the heresy of the multiple emanations of God, docetism. D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. That wasn't, that was just an aside. That, that kind of covers that A through C there is docetism. So they either believed that Jesus was not really divine, but simply a series of emanations from God, or that he was not in any sense human, but kind of a phantom in the shape of a man. Okay, that's, these are two of the, the heresies that Jesus was dealing with, or Jesus, that John was dealing with while he was writing. He was writing to explain that what John the Baptist was really preaching was that there comes one mightier than I and not to put me up on a pedestal. And then the other one is that Jesus is in fact God manifest in the flesh and not just another either emanation from a God or not really of, or just a phantom, not really of a man. Okay. Um, the book of John deals with, and I'm going to list these here in just a couple of minutes here. John is... In fact, you can write this next to letter E. John is the strongest book for the incarnation. Incarnation. Okay? And, and incarnation is the revealing of God through man or in man. It was, another word is Emmanuel, God with us. Okay? When Jesus was born as a baby, it was what John is saying in chapter one is that God became a human being and a divine being at the same time. What he's saying is, the, this again is all analogies kind of break down because there's one thing that I'll never be able to explain and that is simply this, how God became God-man. Can't explain that, he just did it. Okay, so all analogies break down for a little bit. But when we were building this church, we would have the blueprints thrown up. And if I was talking to somebody, I'd say, here's our church. Well, there wasn't one wall up yet. Concrete hadn't been poured. Dirt hadn't been dug, but I was claiming it was our church. It was still in blueprint phase. Okay? John is identifying with the word logos, blueprint or plan or reason. 
And when he says in the beginning was the word that God had it from the foundation of the world, the Bible says he was slain from the foundation before time even began. Max Lucado writes it perfectly. He gives this whole story and writes out the whole gospel story. And then at the very end of his chapter, he said, then the author put down the pen and said, let there be light. He wrote the whole story and then created the story. Okay. And so the blueprint became the man. The blueprint was God becoming man. Okay. And, and so we said it was our church. Well, the blueprint was just the plan. It was, didn't come into existence. Now, here's the only difference, and this is where the analogy breaks down. That blueprint itself never became the church, okay? Well, the Logos became the man, okay? And we'll see that in, in John chapter 1. So letter E, the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. This is the start of what he is identifying with and dealing with. Uh, some held variations of that, of the docetism. Oh. Variations of it. So what I'm going to do here now is just, and it will be done for the evening, is the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. Okay? Um, and we're going to share with you some of the different scriptures that are there. So... The fact that John is out to correct both the Gnostic tendencies explains really what's paradoxical emphasis of his gospel. On the one hand, there is no gospel which so uncompromisingly explains or stresses that Jesus really was a man. Um, Jesus was angry. And we're going to get into the, let me just list these here. Chapter 2, verse 15. Jesus was angry at those at the temple. He got ticked off. That was in 2.15, or yeah, chapter 2, verse 15. He stresses his humanity in chapter 4, verse 6, in that he was physically tired by the well in Samaria. John emphasizes his humanity in chapter 4, verse 31 there, in that the disciples offer him food like you would a hungry. He's offered to a meal, if you will. Okay, so just by these first three, and then we'll give you the rest while you're catching up. These first three, what, what John is trying to let the Gnostic heresy know is that he was a human being. He wasn't just a phantom. He got tired. He got hungry. He got angry. Number four there, he had sympathy for those that were hungry in chapter six. So as a man, he had sympathy for them that were hungry. So it wasn't just a phantom. It wasn't just make-believe. There was a doctrine that floated around, oh, it's been about 20 years ago, I believe, that Jesus really wasn't man, he, was, he, he had divine flesh. No, he was a man. Chapter 11, he knew grief and wept tears. The second shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept.
And then at John chapter 19, while he was hanging on the cross, he says, I thirst. So John is showing that Jesus wasn't just a shadowy, docetic figure, an imaginary figure. It shows one that knew what the writer of Hebrews said. He knew what it was like in every point that we have felt. Tired, hungry, angry, sympathetic, grief-filled, thirsty. He did it all. That was Jesus. But then he also went on to reveal Jesus as divinity. Uh, the pre-existence of Christ. Now, here's, here's what I want you to understand. Christ was the sent one. Okay? He was the Messiah. So when I say pre-existent Christ, pre-Bethlehem is what I'm talking about. Okay? Pre-birth, pre-becoming a man. Okay, Jesus said it this way in John 8, 58, before Abraham, I am. Okay, Jesus declared who he was. He declared he was there before Abraham. Okay, so at, in divinity fashion. Now we're going to talk about some of this in days to come because there's ways that we understand things a little bit differently. But before Abraham, I, I am. Uh, number two, in chapter 17, he says, glory with the Father before the world was made. He had glory before the world was made. He could only have that at divinity because the baby wasn't born yet. Humanity hadn't come into existence yet as far as Jesus was concerned. And then in chapter 6, he speaks about coming down from heaven. And again, when we get into these passages, we'll really be able to break a lot of this down a lot, a lot more. We'll have a good foundation, nobody, at the end of the next 10 minutes. Number two in your notes, the omniscience of Christ or the all-knowing. Omniscience means all-knowing. Okay, so in chapter 4, he knew the record of the woman in Samaria when it wasn't broadcast. She said, he's told me all that I ever did when he came. You've had five husbands, the one you're with now isn't one of your husbands. I just said, knew the past record of the woman. Nobody else would have known that. I mean, other than the people. In fact, that was kind of her thing. Well, who have you been talking to? <coughs> Nobody. In chapter 5, he knew how long the poor man was sick before it was explained. He knew how long the, there was a poor man that was sick. He knew how long he had been sick in chapter 5. In chapter 6, before he even asked the question, he knew the answer to the question that he put to Philip. In other words, he knew the answer before the question. And he knew the answer 
He knew the answer before the question was even asked. And it's revealed that way in chapter 6. And then later in chapter 6, in chapter 6, verse 61, he knows that Judas is the one that's going to betray him before Judas betrays him. That's, that's number four there. And then number five, he knew Lazarus died before anybody had told him in chapter 11. Only divinity can know those things beforehand. Then there's one last aspect here, the Jesus independence. And what I mean by this is Jesus played a role as divinity. He played a role as humanity, but he had his own mindset, which doesn't register with me because it's so unsafe for God to do so. God became a man. You have to remember that Jesus was made of two natures. Deity had overshadowed Mary, humanity. And so Jesus was both God and man, both deity and humanity, and he filled both roles. He could calm the seas and he could decide when to do something. We know this, number one, in John chapter two, he deals with his mother. Mom wants him to do something. He said, my hour's not yet come. But then he...